Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Ipsos polling uh, did a major poll on immigration. They find that Canadians broadly are favorable toward immigration, but 40% say immigration is making the country change in ways they don't like. And that's something that we've heard um, time and again over the years. One in four, so 25% of Canadians, think Canada should close borders to refugees. That's one in four. So 75% by extension um, do not, I suspect. To put some context to all of this, Sean Simpson joins us. He's the vice president of Ipsos. Sean, good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Great to be here. Thank you. So explain to us what it, what it means when your release says Canadians are broadly favorable toward immigration. I see numbers like 38% of Canadians are favorable toward immigration, 9% very, 29, 29% fairly. First of all, is that 9 and 29 part of the 38 yeah, that's uh, it comprises the thirty-eight. Uh, there's a big chunk uh, that are that are neutral, somewhere in the middle. So they they don't speak favorably of it, uh, but they they won't speak negatively. Really, the the Canadian position and, and being relatively favorable is is in the global context, because we surveyed, uh, we ran the same questions in twenty-five countries, and when you hear a stat like thirty-eight percent believe of Canadians believe that immigration has generally had a positive impact on their country you think well that's not terrific except that the global average is 21 and we're 38 um, and so if you look at other countries like Germany it's at 18 percent France at 14 percent Italy at 10 percent Hungary at five percent in the global context Canadians are much more positive than uh, many other countries even in the uh, in the G8. Why? Why? Well, the the first reality of immigration in Canada is that we need it to sustain our population. Uh, we a country needs about 2.1 uh, children for every household uh, in order to to sustain the population, not even grow, but sustain. And Canadians, we just don't have children uh, anymore, and uh, it's under two. Uh, the average household has under two children. And so we need immigration in order to sustain uh, the population and, and to help us grow. So that's uh, reason number one. Um, but there's also diversity that uh, I think we're proud of uh, here in Canada. Uh, the poll does show that there's a certain proportion, roughly one in four, who who don't like the way that the country changes as a result of immigration, but really that means that, that three-quarters are either ambivalent or see some benefit to it. Uh, am I reading this incorrectly then? Because I thought it was 40% who say immigration is causing Canada to change in ways they don't like. Uh, no, you're, you're right. It is, it is, it is 40%. Uh, and, and I guess that, that makes the figure uh, more, more concerning. It's still not approaching a majority like it is in 
many other countries that we polled, including uh, Italy, Turkey, uh, Russia, Belgium, Hungary, and, and South Africa. The, uh, France is actually a country, and we, we've been hearing about it in the news a lot recently, there's, there's been a lot of uh, civil unrest there, uh, terrorism, uh, the rise of, uh, uh, of, of Le Pen, who didn't win the most recent election but, but gave a, a strong showing. We, and Donald Trump, of course, in the United States and, and uh, in the U.K., there have been these parties that, are, that are, are now saying, well, do we need to actually close our borders down, slow it down a little bit, and try to take stock of where we're at? We're not seeing that happen in Canada. So even though you've got uh, anywhere from a quarter to four in ten agreeing with negative positions, depending on the question here in Canada, I don't think we're, we're, we've yet hit a critical mass like we have in other countries. Do you think that if the federal government, if a hypothetical federal government of Canada were to say, we're going to close the borders and we're going to close them tomorrow, uh, before anything went to court, before I'm mean, just talking about a hypothetical government that would make that statement, would there be a national negative response to that? Would it be indifference or would it be about time? What do you think it would be? I think there would be a negative response to it because I, I think, you know, even though people have their personal views, I think there's a, there's a difference between uh, sort of in the closet, uh, having a negative view towards immigration and expressing it in an anonymous online poll that is bound to reflect the population, but it, it's still confidential. You know, we, we don't tie it back to individual respondents. And then going out and wanting the government to do something about it and, and enact it as, as policy. And I, I think what you'd have is you, you, you'd have a very, um, uh, you'd create a, a, a problem where none exists. Uh, you, you would you would get a backlash and and uh, it, it may be a, end up being a divisive issue, but it would it would create something where uh, it doesn't exist right now. So I'm just trying to put get my head around 38 percent of Canadians being favorable toward immigration, 29 percent are negative about it. But let's take that 38 percent who are favorable, and yet 40 percent say immigration causes Canada to change ways, and they don't in ways they don't like. So is that 40 percent? All, are they all from the percentage, uh, from the uh, 58% that are not part, of, this is going to sound crazy, or, or very convoluted, uh, that are not part of the 38% that favorable are favorable toward immigration? So the 40%, those who say they're not happy with the way the country changes, are they all taken from the group that is opposed to immigration? Not necessarily. You do, in, in a poll like this, have certain respondents who have conflicting reviews and mm-hmm. fall uh, on both sides of the equation. So they may think that immigration has been favorable for Canada overall, but personally they don't like some of the changes that, that, uh, that, have, been, that have been happening. Um, and so you, you get these sort of contradictions where it's sort of hard to, to parse out what exactly is going on because people in an issue like Im- on an issue like immigration can see both sides of the coin. Mm. What is going to happen, do you think? You did 25 countries. What's the, um, what's the likely outcome of what you see developing in Europe? When you talk about Italy, you talk about Germany, you talk about France, you talk about Hungary with, uh, with numbers that are very low as far as there's favorability, population favorability toward immigration is concerned. What happens in those countries? Is there, is it going, do you think it's going to decline more? Um, and, and if so, how do you deal with that? You know, the, well, the rise of terrorism and, and extremism and, and 
the frequency with which it's it's happening in places like the UK and and France, um, I think that's going to uh, cause um, uh, greater sympathy for, say, the right that wants to close down uh, the borders um, in the belief that that's going to to protect uh, their country. Um, so if the pendulum swings that way, you know, we may find that that's actually not the solution. I know there's there's a lot a lot of uh, terrorism uh, occurs from people who are already within your borders, not not those who who are who are coming over. Um, so I, I think we, we may see the pendulum swing one way when we f- realize that that might not be the solution. It, it you know those those parties then fall fall out of favor. It, it, it's the it's the new world. It's a new reality. It's the instability that's causing and the inability to find a solution to the problem that I think is, is causing people to uh, to have some of these views, some of them which seem contradictory, uh, because there doesn't seem to be a solution at present mm-hmm. to this rise of extremism. In about 60 seconds, share with us, please, what the attitude in this country is about refugees, and particularly people who cross the border and uh, do so illegally, um, not uh, not honoring, if you will, the safe third country agreement. They just come to Canada illegally. What's the what's the consensus view across Canada about that? Yeah, we've done some polling on this on this issue in the past. And the the, the consensus is actually that the rules are sort of screwed up. Uh, and uh, Canadians like rules and they like to follow rules. And it doesn't make much sense to Canadians that people who don't follow the rules get to skip the line. Uh, and so uh, it, it, Canadians feel that the government doesn't necessarily have a have a handle on it. It's not a massive problem, but it's a uh, it's a it's it's a it's a situation that needs a more permanent fix. And Canadians aren't convinced that the government um, has got that long term solution in mind. John Simpson, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for taking the time on a Sunday to join us. My pleasure, Roy. All the best, Vice President of Ipsos. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I'm going to begin, though, with, we've talked about him a lot over the last month, Omar Cotter. He was back in court on Thursday, and it's Omar's intent to have the judicial system change his bail conditions. And one of the things he was asking for was freer access or free access to the internet, he wanted also to be able to visit with his sister, uh, Zainab, with without any supervision, and there were some other uh, questions or, or desires that he had. Scott Newark joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. There are other issues we're going to talk to Scott about today, but former Alberta Crown Attorney, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Are we now in for a series of sequels of Omar Khadr in the news? Well, it's I mean, that's been the reality, hasn't it, since uh, he's returned to Canada. Um, although, in fairness, um, you know, Cotter got back to Canada by following the legal process under the International Transfer of uh, Offenders Act when he felt that he was entitled to be in provincial uh, corrections other than federal corrections. He went to court and got a ruling um, when he decided he wanted uh, to be released. Interestingly, rather than apply for parole where he'd if he denied uh, do, doing what he uh, pled guilty to, that would be a negative uh, factor. He applied for, he challenged his 
uh, conviction in the United States and then applied for bail. But my point in all of this is that, you know what, he has actually followed through uh, and on what he's trying to get through the legal system. And um, this is the latest example of that. Um, so uh, there were a lot of people who were outraged, uh, not only about the, uh, the payment to him, but about this fact that he was again using the system. But I, I surprised some people by saying, look, have confidence in our rule of law justice system. And I think what happened here with the court basically denying virtually all of what he had asked for, with one exception, uh, the justice system worked and turned down his requests. One of the concerns that I have, Scott, and uh, what you just said essentially sort of eliminates my concern, I guess, uh, technically, but I still have it. And the, and the concern for me is that once Cotter got the $10.5 million, once he became this cause celebre, I wonder whether Crown attorneys and judges would be sufficiently motivated to make an example, either make an example of him or to really apply the law as it can be applied, or whether they're, they'll take a bit of a hands-off approach to Cotter. Well, that doesn't appear to be the situation in this case. Not in this case. The, the, the judge specifically said, um, you know, there was legitimate reasons, for example, as to why you weren't allowed to associate with your sister Zainab. You've uh, produced no evidence to suggest that anything about her has changed, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I think the judge uh, uh, did her job. Uh, she also refused to allow... Uh, Cotter wanted to be able to travel the country freely, and she rejected that. He wanted to reduce the frequency of uh, how often he had to report to the supervisor, and the judge uh, rejected that. And the only other thing he wanted was to get, in effect, greater access to the Internet through different kinds of devices, which she said, fine, but added the conditions, you will not be allowed to access any kind of terrorism-related material. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get it. I think no, I get this. Job. I get that. No, I'm not talking about this judge. I'm speaking in a, in a broader sense, that once he became this cause, once he got the $10.5 million and the Prime Minister justified it, would the system take a more hands-off attitude or approach toward him? Well, that was my own first, question. First of all, he was a uh, celebrity for some people long before he got his $10.5 million. Yeah, but that changes right? everything. He was the, the poster child for this uh, supposed uh, abuse. And I must admit, there was one thing that I was hoping for, that the judge was going to rule, mm-hmm. that in denying his uh, request for the change to the bail conditions, she was going to order costs against him and his lawyers, say maybe in the amount of, I don't know, $10.5 million? <laughs> Paid to the ground, didn't see that. Though. Maybe next time. <laughs> maybe next time. Because you know there'll be a next time with Omar Khan. Well, this is what I'm thinking. There's going to be sequels. Of course. And, and this is nowhere. He'll want those bail conditions... Um, loosened and changed and you'll yeah, keep but at you know it. what I mean it was uh, I think you and I talked about this uh, uh, I would have been curious how did he happen to, given the restrictions that were already on him that he wasn't allowed to have communications except in a defined way with his sister Zainab how did he happen to know that she was coming to Canada well that's the good question isn't it no, and no, I, no. I know that's the question you wanted answered Yes, well, if I, do, I must admit every now and then I sometimes I regret not being in the courtroom I sure would have liked to have asked that one so what should we assume, and why wasn't that question asked? Well, uh, I, I, you'd have to have been there and, and known the case and the way that it unfolded. That's more of a procedural thing than anything else. Mm. But, um, I, you know, I, I suspect uh, uh, 
they will probably attempt to find ways that they can reduce the restrictions on him. He is somebody who has, uh, you know, he chose to go the route of seeking bail rather than applying for parole. And, you know, let's face it, the reason why a lot of these guys don't get parole is because they don't have any remorse, they don't admit that what they did was wrong. And if Cotter had taken that position, which is what his public position is now, that would have worked against him on parole. So he applied for bail instead. But again, in fairness, there has been no allegations, other than the theoretical one I raised, about him breaching the conditions of his bail. So he's got a you know relatively good track record of complying with the conditions. And my real point about all of this stuff is that this is something that should be governed by our rule of law. No special treatment for Omar Khadr one way or the other. Let the our rule of law legal system handle it. All right. Um, Alan Schoenborn, not criminally responsible, mm-hmm. killed his three children. So now he uh, he has um, uh, not... What's the, what's the terminology that he's, well, he's not going to be dealing with? It's a little complicated. Schoenborn was uh, found not criminally responsible for the uh, killing of his three children right. on the basis of him suffering from this mental disorder. After the, that uh, finding was made, the former conservative government changed the laws to create what was, in effect, a uh, designated high-risk offender status for certain non-criminally responsible offenders. Right. What that really did, Roy, was that it changed the way that the mental health system dealt with these high-risk offenders. It uh, restricted the kinds of uh, release that they could actually get, and it changed it extended the period from when they had to have their reviews because the normal procedure is every year these people get to have a review and so i think correctly the government moved to in effect differentiate between the highest risk offenders and so when schoenborn applied for his review this would be uh, a couple of years ago the british columbia crown's office said well no and they brought an application under the new legislation to have him declared a high-risk offender and there were some issues as to whether it applied retroactively or not. That, that's really not the point, because they had a, a long hearing, and the judge decided that he did not meet the criteria for the high-risk offender designation, based essentially on the uh, forensic psychiatric evidence that he was doing well under treatment. Yeah, but like that's that. starting to sound, uh, Scott, that starts to sound a whole lot like Vince Lee to a lot of people. Uh, no kidding, no kidding. And what happened was that the uh, the court found that he didn't meet the criteria. That's what the B.C. Crown said, okay, well, we're going to consider whether we're going to appeal it. And the story that was in the news this week is that they decided, they changed their mind, they've decided on review of the decision that they're not going to appeal it. Mm-hmm. So he's he will be dealt with uh, according to the way that things have always happened, which which I think is is problematic, because while it is true that, you know, the we have a distinction made between people who are found to be not criminally responsible because of mental disorder, it doesn't change what they did. And I would suggest that in some circumstances, the nature of what it is that they did is something that should be directly relevant and should have a different application as to how they are treated by the mental health. And there is no way that somebody like Carol Dedelli should be made to feel irrelevant throughout the entire process, which is exactly what Carol was made to feel like. I've talked to her so many times on and off the air over the last years. She deserved far better treatment than she received, and Vince Lee got far more, far better treatment than he uh, yeah. deserved. And, and, you know, there's a similar application. And Schoenborn, too. As well, even on high-risk offenders. We 
we we tweak the rules a little bit, but people who are denied, you know, remember the uh, the Clifford Olson, yeah. right? And he'd go back to court every year for another parole hearing just to torment the victims. Yeah, and and you know, I have uh, great concern for people who are dealing with significant mental health issues. It's not a case of ignoring or just pushing aside people with mental health issues, but at some at some level, you have to be responsible for the act that you committed at well, some level. Whether they're even specifically responsible, I think there's a balancing of interests that needs to take place, which is this guy isn't in here because of the color of his hair. Okay, it was a horrifically violent act that yes. should be taken into account because yes. he's not the public ramifications are not the same. And how do you how do you make the case that he's not a high risk offender? How do you make the case that he, how do you make the case so that the public understands and agrees that someone like Schoenborn or somebody like Lee is not a high risk? You'll never convince me of that. Agreed, my, me either. Now that doesn't mean that they need to be treated in the same way as somebody who is found criminally responsible. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, but I agree. That also doesn't mean that they should be allowed, you know, a day passes to wander around in the communities and uh, and then have no criminal record or no record of any kind. So nobody knows if uh, if you know if they're released as Lee has with a new name. Nobody knows I, what he's how done. How crazy is it that we allow people to change their names? Yeah. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Back to Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney and uh, former Senior Policy Advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety, Adjunct Professor at Simon Fraser University. Now, on this issue of, Mr. Newark, on the issue of the border, on the issue of border security, on the issue of making our uh, the porous uh, reality of our border, what what's the suggestion? And I know you have an association uh, of some kind with the border union guards union. Um, what's their what's their frustration? What what needs to be said about this? Um, well, it's uh, I think the disappointment that uh, the frontline officers have, which is the the same as you know most Canadians, is that our government uh, doesn't appear to be doing anything about it. You know, their go-forward strategy to deal with this situation of the flood of illegals entering Canada from the United States, their, you know, their strategy is to buy heated tents. Uh, this is a complicated issue. Actually, I, I wrote a piece. It's on, for anybody who's interested in the details, it's on the uh, Frontline Security Magazine uh, website. Um, it is admittedly complicated, but uh, instead of actually acknowledging there's a problem, and sitting down with the Americans and trying to get them to reopen this safe third country agreement that is a big part of the problem, you know, our government is putting out messages that they're, they're saying, oh, well, these are irregular arrivals. That's nonsense. They're illegal. They're deliberately entering between ports of entry because the safe third country agreement doesn't apply to those locations. And then, uh, you know, the, uh, the government has actually, the, the prime minister actually said that, uh, oh, well, there's no advantage for people you know, entering between ports of entry. Of course there is. Even Janet Dent from the Council of Refugees said that was completely incorrect. Well, they wouldn't be doing it if there weren't an advantage. Of course. Now, add to that the fact that the uh, the number of frontline officers has decreased by about 1,200 positions. That includes in the intelligence sectors as well, too. Uh, since a program, I think it was back around 2010, 2011, called uh, Deficit Reduction, uh, action plan that was supposed to reduce bureaucracy, but in CBSA's case, ended up reducing frontline operations. 
And, you know, you've just got this incredible frustration at a government that doesn't seem to be willing to effectively deal with this situation. You talk about uh, 1,200 positions being gone, and then you ask yourself, well, what can you do to to replace, you can't really replace the bodies, but what can you do to to fill in at least some of the gaps? And technology comes into play, and... uh, yeah. Yeah. The, 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 just the Travis, the Travis Vader case in uh, in Alberta. Uh, sure. Vader. Let's uh, let's let's use that because one of the things that I had suggested was asking information to get you know statistics on what the consequences are of all these people entering there. How many of them end up we you know getting warrants for? And you know, often you and I end up talking about sort of the negative cases, but every now and then there are some positive ones, and this is a good example: the Travis uh, Vader uh, murder case that uh, you uh, raised. Vader is the uh, the guy who was uh, convicted of the uh, murder of the uh, uh, two uh, seniors, uh, but he was out on bail uh, while he was facing these murder charges, and he had conditions on him that included no taking drugs, and he also was uh, wearing uh, electronic uh, monitoring, uh, dev- an ankle uh, bracelet device. Uh, and during the course of the, while the trial was going on, he had to submit a, for a drug test, and the cops were pretty sure that he was taking drugs. And when they got the results back that showed that he was taking drugs, and he knew he was going to get found because he was taking drugs, they went to the location he was supposed to be at, and he was gone. He had taken off. But thanks to the electronic monitoring that's supplied by a little Alberta company called Safe Tracks uh, GPS Canada uh, that has just the most sophisticated technology going, uh, they were able to track him as to where he was, and they went and they got him and they found him before he was able to commit any other offenses. Mm-hmm. And it's a good example of the kind of proactive use of technology that can help actually prevent further offenses. And you think of a guy like this, okay, that knew that he was about to get caught on something. Thank God that this technology was able to uh, to help prevent any future crimes yep. being committed. Yep. Now, I'm just going to leave you with this, and I mentioned it briefly uh, last hour. And that is, I saw a term that was used by Associated Press earlier this week. And, of course, the Associated Press style book becomes the Bible for um, news writing for, for quite a number of news organizations. They came up with, get this, undocumented citizen. Undocumented citizen. Undocumented citizen. I want you to include that in your next article in Frontline Magazine. I'm uh, curious as to their application of it, but, uh, you know... Um, yeah, got to go, buddy. As always, ask the right questions. Scott, Scott New York on The Roy Green Show. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. What we see developing, though, is some personal, seems, business attacks. And that is inevitable, but it's a little early. But it shows to me, I think, that Premier Wynne, who is giving Patrick Brown, the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, six weeks to apologize for suggesting that she was on trial in Sudbury. She's giving, she's giving him six weeks to apologize, and then I suppose a libel action might be undertaken. Initially, the Premier was giving Mr. Brown, I think, three days. Now she's extended it to six weeks. This is going to become more personal, more direct, and uh, Patrick Brown joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Brown, good to talk to you again. Well, Roy, it's always uh, great to be on your show. So, what are you what are you going to do? The Premier says you're going to have to apologize or else. You know, the, the deadline, uh, the original deadline uh, passed, uh, and I, I said at the time, 
uh, baseless legal threats will be ignored. It's a, it's a sad day for Ontario. No one wants to see the province's premier debased and humiliated. Uh, uh, I think we need to put this ugly chapter behind us. I want the government to uh, work on creating jobs again in Ontario. Uh, and, uh, and frankly, uh, this is just a diversion tactic. She's trying to change the channel, trick the media, as the Liberals always do, you know, 15 minutes before she's about uh, to testify uh, at a trial of her closest advisors, her campaign chair. You know, they, they start this baseless legal threat. It was a diversion tactic from a government that is experts in diversion tactics. And I'm not taking their bait. It's a baseless legal threat. And, and what is really, what really should be talked about across Ontario is the fact that we have two liberal political corruption trials that go to the heart of this government and the heart of the Liberal Party. This also happened in 2014, didn't it? Premier Wynne uh, launched a libel case against your predecessor. Every single time they need a distraction, they play the media and they play the public like a violin. Remember when they had the fire sale of Hydro One? Yes. Uh, as a desperate revenue grab for the government, on the same day they announced that booze would be in grocery stores. And everyone was talking about that instead of uh, what was happening with Hydro One. You know, the start of these trials, they also rushed the marijuana announcement before any province, before the experts said it had even finished their testifying, before the police had given their input, they're rushing an announcement just to divert us from what's really happening. And I'll stress this, Roy, this is about liberal political corruption that goes to the highest part of the Liberal Party. This is not just some underlings. This is the Liberal Party campaign chair in, one, in, in, in the trial in February, which is a breach of the Elections Act based on these allegations of bribery. And in Toronto, which is even more egregious, you've got the premier, the former Liberal Premier's chief of staff, deputy chief of staff, uh, responsible for wiping evidence in the gas plant scandal, which is now costing us originally with $1 billion, is now grown to close to $2 billion. And that's, Roy, that's on your hydro bill. That negligence has resulted in everyone in Ontario paying hydro hydro rates. And like I said, this is not liberal underlings. This is the top brass of the Premier's office and the Liberal Party organization. Doesn't sound to me like you're going to let go of this either. No, because frankly, this is what's happened after 14 long years in power. The Liberal Party is only interested in one thing, and that's the Liberal Party staying in power, and they will do anything, they will say anything to cling to power. It does not matter how much it will cost the taxpayer. It does not matter how much it will cost you. Uh, and uh, I'm glad that there's attention being shown on how they operate. I'm glad that, you know, as we're frustrated with our hydro bills, you know, we see when we learn how we got there uh, with this uh, liberal interference in, in, uh, in, in the gas plant scandal. Sometimes you you know, the numbers are so big, $2 billion, it's tough to appreciate how it affects every family in Ontario. When you look at your hydro bill and you see that global adjustment and how your bill has skyrocketed, it's this team. It's this incompetent team that was more concerned about holding on to a single seat than the broader good of Ontario. Now, the hydro rates in the province of Ontario, if I remember correctly, have climbed 70% or climbed 70% between 2006 and 2000. And 14, and of course, last year we had thousands of people unable to pay their hydro because the rates were so high. It's not that they didn't want to pay; they couldn't pay because the rates were so uh, exorbitant, so out of uh, out of the range of so many people. And yet, and then the premier stepped up and she said, "She, well, I made a mistake." And what did she do? She put us into further debt. 
Yeah, you know, Kathleen Wynne has given Ontario another mortgage statement. It's called their hydro bill. And rather than fixing the structural problems, this massive overgeneration caused by the, the bad contracts act, the Green Energy Act, where the Liberal Party got rich on it, uh, instead of dealing with the structural problems, they're just borrowing money. They're borrowing now upwards towards $93 billion to try to borrow themselves out of a political uh, challenge. Uh, uh, I wish that we actually had a government that said, we've got a problem, we made mistakes, and we're going to fix it, rather than simply thinking we can borrow on future generations' uh, behalf. Now, based on the reports we're hearing, after the election year, hydro bills could go upward towards 61% up because of this borrowing scheme. 61% up. People can't afford their hydro bills right now, and she's signed us on to another scheme where hydro bills are going to skyrocket. You know, like, give me a break. You know, people on Ontario can't afford any more of Kathleen. It's going to be quite an election campaign. It's underway now. It, it's uh, a few months away, and, uh, you know, I'm not underestimating the, the Liberals. I know they're going to do anything and say anything, and, uh, you know, we, we can't underestimate them. And that's why I'm working so hard on So no apology is going to be forthcoming from Patrick Brown to Kathleen Wynne, then? No, it's a diversion tactic. It's a baseless legal threat. She knows that, uh, and I'm not playing those games. And I hope, I hope everyone in the public who are watching this story spectacle sees Kathleen Wynne for exactly what she's doing, and she's trying to divert attention from the two liberal political corruption trials. Mr. Brown, good talking to you. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. All the best. Patrick Brown. Got more energy there. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Have you heard about the dark web? Now, we've all heard the term, but have you heard about the dark web itself and how it operates and what goes on there? It's speculated that information from the data breach of Equifax, 134 million personal accounts affected, may be sold on the so-called dark web. And then there's also the deep web. Daniel Tobak is the CEO of Sci Intelligence in Toronto, and he's an international cyber intelligence expert. And uh, we're glad that he's here to talk to us about about this dark web. Daniel, thank you very much for the uh, for for the time. I've al- I've always wanted to do this. I've wanted to do this interview for a long time. Talk about this dark web. What is it exactly? Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on, Roy. Uh, there's really two parts out there. There's the dark web and then there's the deep web. In essence, this is part of the Internet that is not indexed by search engines. So, for example, when you go to Google today or Yahoo or any other popular search engines and you search for something, millions and billions of results come. And that's because those particular websites are indexed. People want to be found. Mm-hmm. The difference with the dark web and the deep web is websites that you're not supposed to find just by searching for them. Uh, usually you need special software and platforms to actually reach them, special configurations such as stores and so on, VPNs, and it's only by invitation. So unless somebody wants you to see this information, and unless you're part of a particular group, you're not able to see these websites and the forms that are going on in the dark and the deep web. So you mentioned Tor, and I did a little reading on this, and I, I don't really know anything about it other than the name, but it, it was suggested in the piece that I read that you could download this Tor, which is, again, suggested to be a search engine, and that would allow you to work within the dark web. Is that incorrect? Absolutely. Tor basically is a, is a special search engine that keeps you anonymous. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and it basically doesn't give any information about you. And again, unfortunately, you know, 85% of Tor is used by criminals. I mean, the dark and deep web, this is almost like a flea market for criminals. Uh, so when you're using Tor and you get into that, you can download things, you can look at things, and you're basically anonymous. So they encrypt your information, your personal information. That's correct. It, it, rather than encrypt, they basically don't keep. You're going through another tunnel. Uh, almost imagine a tunnel that does not record your speed limit. Okay. <laughs> it knows nothing about you. Yeah. And so what the majority of activity that takes place on the dark web or the deep web and or the deep web is, is criminal? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the unfortunate part, uh, this is where, this is the criminal's uh, playground. It's not for the faint of heart, and I never recommend for anybody just to experiment with this. It is a dangerous zone. The moment you log on to the dark web, deep web, you're potentially a target. People, the criminals, want to know who you are, why you're there, what's your information. And for somebody that is not technical, they can basically breach your computer within about 18 to 26 minutes once you log into this because it's professional. There's things that monitor who and what user just accessed a particular website and form and so on. It's a pretty shady place. So a criminal activity is taking place and all of a sudden somebody who just wants to experiment a little bit and has heard about this is, gets on the dark web and uh, these individuals who are conducting a criminal enterprise want to know who this person is whose identity they, they can't tell immediately so they go on and they find it and quickly. Absolutely. There, I mean, you have to understand you're dealing with professionals. Right. Right? These are not kids. Uh, and I mean, sorry, when I mean kids, I mean, these, these are true professionals that, you know, when they see something suspicious, they literally can get access into your computer. They know what country you're in, you know, what computer you're using, your IP address, and they might even be able to breach your computer. Uh, we do experiments sometimes where we have a, a dummy computer where we enter it when we do education for, for clients. And, and again, this is where the statistics come from, about eight minutes on average, and they're into your computer, right? And they're asking, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and you're oh, it, it's too late to to get out then i guess it's it's too late it's uh, you need to kind of close your computer up uh, reformat it and so on because they'll usually infect you very quickly you know everybody always hear about the dark web and deep web and you know the best way to categorize it uh, is, is a flea market for criminals you can literally buy a missile you can buy a tank you can hire a hacker you can even hire a hitman i mean this is the kind of stuff that's going on in the dark web drugs uh, it's, 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 it's a real playground for the criminals. And there's n nothing has been done, nothing can be done by authorities to, you know, to, 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 well, to shut it down. I guess not. I, you see, you can't really shut it down. And it, so the way things work today, when there's criminal activity, uh, the, the authorities, law enforcement, national security, they, they get alert from it, either by a complaint or part of their investigation units. So they go after it and they can find the origin, the identity of those people because they're in a way operating publicly on, on, you know, on, on the regular web and you can find somebody's identity through that. On the dark web, everything is anonymous. There is no names, there's nicknames, there is no addresses, there is no IP addresses that actually mean, mean anything. So when somebody logs onto the dark web to conduct a transaction, they're logging on through various you know, phantom servers and VPNs, virtual private networks, that completely mask their identity. The problem also with the dark and deep web is even if the authorities have understood that there is a criminal activity going on and they want to research into it and shut them down, but the time they get a court order to freeze 
to preserve information relating to the crime, those servers that actually were holding the cache, the history of that conversation, they go offline. Unlike the regular web where things are being retained today. That's really the big difference. So if I were a shady character and I were looking to buy something that is totally illegal, entirely impossible to, to purchase openly, I'd be on the dark web. Uh, someone might be aware of my history as a purchaser of, I don't know, missiles or tanks or uh, the, the items you mentioned. And so I would get invited to, uh, to get onto their site where they would conduct these sales and because they would recognize who I am because of their invitation to me, then uh, then we would conduct business. You got it. It's almost, you know, like in the old days uh, when organized crime, when the mob uh, has brings somebody in and somebody actually vouches for him, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, it's the same way. Unless you get invited, you ain't coming in and nobody's going to talk to you. Uh, people also have, you know, Bitcoin accounts and serial numbers that they exchange as proof of their identity. So there's cold words and so on. You, can... you, see, you see, the unfortunate part with the dark and deep web, what we see today on Google, the billions of websites that are, that are, you know, the, are, are basically cataloged by Google is only about 14% of the actual Internet. That's a very scary fact. That is. Think about, think about all the things we can see and find yeah. out through public web. Uh, search engines, it's only 14% of the actual Internet. You know, I've, I've, I don't like the fact that uh, search engines kind of track your activities. So I use this uh, DuckDuckGo.com yep. because, because they don't. And, uh, <laughs> but but then you're laughing because other people have as well. Is, is, that, is that a myth or is that real? No, no, that is real. And the reason I'm laughing is I'm actually, I'm, I'm impressed, Roy. I'm impressed because uh, the average person doesn't know how to mask their IP address or their identity when they're surfing. Unfortunately, today, anytime you go on the Internet, doesn't matter if you're looking for a cookie, entertainment, a flight, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. your information is preserved somewhere that you search for this right. and from this IP address. So the only way to, to keep yourself anonymous, not for illegal reasons, just because you don't want to disclose who you are every time you search for something, that is the right way to go, just like you mentioned. Yeah. So it's duckduckgo.com that, 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 that I use. Uh, also, I find that if I use some of the more common search engines, and I'm looking for a story or an incident that I'm interested in talking about on the air, I will often, it feels to me, Daniel, it feels like I'm getting a, uh, a massaged series of options. In other words, they're showing me what they want me to see, not what I want to see. Absolutely. I, uh, you know, we do this as education sometimes, again, for clients and so on. We'll go and search something, and it's magical. Over the next several days, our pop-up ads are coming up to that particular subject. Uh, you know, you want to look at flight, uh, flight tickets. You're looking at a car. You're looking at a cottage rental. It doesn't matter what you're looking for. All of a sudden, pop-ups are tailored to your search criteria, and things that you will search for will come across faster because they know that you search for that. It's pretty scary, I have to tell you. Well, it is. And when you hear somebody like uh, uh, the CEO of Apple, or it was the CEO of, oh, of Apple, who said, Cook, who said that he covers his, uh, the, uh, the lens on the camera on his phone, on his iPhone? Yes. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I, I always tell everyone, you know, a Mac app, you know, if it's an Apple computer or a PC, it, it's almost irrelevant today. Yeah. Uh, somebody can hijack your camera on your computer uh, and actually view. So, again, if you're doing something inappropriate, cover your camera or keep it covered with like a, a little sticker. 
right? And, and so Not on. that anybody yeah. ever does anything inappropriate, but 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 if it's something you don't something you don't want seen, or I mean, or you can spread disinformation and just tell them a lie and. I'm just being silly, but when uh, let, let me take a break. I want to come back and talk some more to you, Daniel, about about what goes on in the the dark web and the deep web. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. You think it's a little scary when somebody reaches out to you from somewhere in the world and tells you that you have uh, just inherited ten billion dollars, and you reply to that, and uh, it is scary because then they've got your some of your information, and if you continue to exchange information or provide them with passwords or other things they're looking for, then uh, then you've compromised yourself completely. Now, when it comes to the dark web and the deep web, Daniel Tobak with the CEO of Scientelligence Inc. in Toronto. Uh, Daniel, is there, a, is there a, an appreciable or significant or defined difference between the dark web and the deep web? Uh, a bit. I mean, the dark web is um, is what I call the first layer, where you need, again, the Tor tools, you need special applications in order to get in and view information. Uh, the deep web really goes in, uh, literally what it means, it's another layer uh, of data that you have to uh, come through. You have to be vetted, you have to be invited, you have to play at a certain uh, level to actually be a part of it. So the average person uh, or, you know, parents probably listening to this now or may have concerns that their kids are investigating and their kids may be trying uh, to get into the dark web or the deep web. For the average person, it's not going to be possible. It's not going to be possible. It's also not advised because, I mean, again, as, as the dark web, it's, it's literally, again, a playground for criminals mm-hmm. and uh, hackers, hitmen, drug lords, uh, child predators. I mean, this is uh, some pretty nasty stuff. Um, so it's not for the faint of heart. Not surprising then to you that the story suggests that uh, some, at least some of the information, the personal information hacked from Equifax, is going to find itself on the dark web and be auctioned there. Absolutely. Well, this is exactly where they sell it. And nine out of times today, when there is a breach, that confidential and private information is being uh, put up for sale on the dark and deep web for exactly that reason. Everybody are anonymous, and you're coming to the place where criminals want to play. This is where you're going to sell. It's basically the market. Well, I'm going to stick with my uh, mundane appearances on the, uh, on, the, <laughs> on the Internet and try to keep myself out of trouble. Thanks, Daniel. Always great talking to you. Appreciate the advice. My true pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Daniel Tobark uh, from Scientelligence Incorporated in Toronto. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.